Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal? Boo. A special edition of our regular look at the legal system and you, a production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. It's the time of year when small masked hoodlums stalk entire neighborhoods demanding protection payments. Or else... Trick or treat time. Ghosts and goblins and things that go bump in the night. Or jump out of the darkness of a haunted house. Farrah, what's the most unusual thing you've ever given a trick-or-treater? Fruit. I passed out oranges when we ran out of candy one year. One year in college when my roommate and I were in our first off-campus compartment, we were completely unaware of trick-or-treaters. And when the first one arrived at our door, we had to think fast. And so several trick-or-treaters went home with slices of bologna in their bags. Oh, no. (laughs) We often wondered what the reaction of parents was. Our only alternative was to crack open boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese dinners. You know, college kids live on those and give each kid a handful of macaroni, but that probably wouldn't have impressed parents either. Did you ever think that giving out bologna could raise some legal questions? Uh, no. But there are a number of legal issues that come with Halloween, and our guest today to talk about them is Gonzalo Fernandez of St. Louis, a partner in Fernandez Law, LLC. The firm handles a number of issues, including personal injury and wrongful death cases. He specializes in cases involving catastrophic injuries. Now, one of those cases involved a teenager who had a severe asthma attack at a haunted house attraction in St. Louis. We'll get into that a little bit, too. Indeed. Welcome to the podcast, Gonzalo. Thank you, Farah. Thank you, Bob. I'm, I'm very happy to be here with you. So Bob just mentioned a Halloween-related lawsuit. Are they very common? Well, you know, it's interesting. The laws don't magically change on Halloween. I think what changes is the circumstances. As you know, like Bob said in his intro, when you get throngs of uh, little kids all hopped up on sugar running around the neighborhood and people go out, it, it is traditionally a night of mischief. Things happen on Halloween. The laws are the same, but I think we see things happen that maybe you don't normally see the other 364 days a year. You were involved in a Halloween case involving a haunted attraction there in St. Louis. Can you tell us a little bit more about that case? Yeah, I can give you a little bit of information about that. The case involved a haunted house where they were producing theatrical fog as an effect inside of the haunted house. We represented a young 15-year-old girl who entered the haunted house with her family and was exposed to this fog. She had a history of asthma, and she had a pretty severe asthma attack. There's different types of theatrical fog, I came to learn. There's water-based fog machines, which pretty innocuous. It's just water vapor. But a lot of venues, a lot of theatrical venues, including sports stadiums and amusement parks, they like glycol-based theatrical fog. Glycol is a byproduct of the petroleum industry. It's a type of oil, and they like it because it doesn't dissipate as quick as the water-based fog, and it kind of hangs in the air. The problem is that this glycol can cause a reaction in the lungs. It's hydrophobic, and it can cause in certain people a, a pretty severe bronchospasm, which is what happened to this poor girl who had a severe asthma attack, was in a coma for over a year, and eventually died because of this. So yeah, it was a very tragic and unfortunate case. 
Was that a wrongful death case? Or how it was. was that it, it, it ended up, it did not start as a wrongful death case. We filed it when she was in a coma and it ended up being a wrongful death case. And it was, you know, I learned more about a theatrical fog than I ever wanted to know. But it's something that you see uniquely on Halloween because, you know, normally these fog machines are used in pretty large venues. You know, you think about going into a sports stadium and the, uh, and the team running on the field through a cloud of fog, you know, in, in a large venue with a lot of ventilation, a lot of space, it, or even on a, it, you know, at a Broadway show, if you're at the Fox, it tends to dissipate. But if you think about a haunted house, it's a maze you're in with low ceilings and tight walls. You're going to be exposed to a much more concentrated volume of this propylene glycol than, than you normally would be in, in some of these other venues. And that's why you see it, more of it in that setting. I, I assume that when people have haunted houses like this, they should have insurance of some kind. Is insurance available for things like this? Yeah, I'm not going to talk about the specifics of our case, but in general, yeah, you would expect someone to have insurance. And, you know, ours was an interesting case because we went all the way up the uh, distribution chain. We went up to, you know, the chemical distributors that sold the components that made the fog. We, I, I spent uh, four days down in Houston deposing the risk managers for all these big petroleum companies that made this stuff, they were wonderfully helpful to me because they, they went on record as saying, yeah, we, you shouldn't be breathing this stuff in. You would expect these venues to, to have insurance for this. And, and there's been other cases. I mean, there was a case I remember that I was not personally involved in, but there was a haunted house here in St. Louis out west somewhere where one of the workers, I think, was standing up on the rim of a bathtub and she actually worked there. She had her scary makeup on, dressed up as a zombie, scaring people as they came through this room and accidentally hung herself and died because she was using a noose. And what a horrible tragedy. You, you can only imagine the people going through the haunted house thinking they're seeing some kind of actor when, in fact, this poor girl got caught up in the noose and was actually asphyxiating. That got a lot of play in the paper, I remember, a few years ago as well. These are both stories that make my heart stop, you know, oh, yeah. um, just just tragedies coming out of what should be, what is normally viewed as a fun time, as you said, a mischievous time of year. Yeah, just a horrible, horrible tragedy. Unfortunately, because it's Halloween, they tend to involve young kids, which, which just compounds the tragedy of this. I can't imagine. Is there a legal action for emotional distress that some child or even some adult going through one of these haunted houses might incur because of something jumps out at them or or seeing something that uh, is too grisly to, for them to see? Well, Bob, you know, that's a really interesting question. I mean, these haunted houses have gotten so extreme now. I mean, I mean, it's almost to the point where, you know, nothing is out of bounds. And I don't think, I think it would be a, a difficult argument to claim as a patron of one of these haunted houses that, oh my gosh, I went through there and I saw this dummy with his head cut off and the blood spurting out. And I was, I'm so traumatized by that. And, and I'm going to sue you. I, Listen, there's something called assumption of the risk. I mean, you kind of went in eyes wide open because they have gotten so extreme. But if a haunted house were to do something that is way out of bounds and would probably have to involve physical contact beyond just exposing you to seeing something, well, then maybe you'd be in a situation where you'd have experienced something that was not expected and not kind of part of the deal that you signed up for. But I think if you're going to a haunted house, I don't think you've got much of an argument that your sensibilities were so shocked that you ought to recover something. I think that would be a tough sell. Well, some of, we've got movies right now that are intentionally frightening and scary and gory, but at least they're rated. But there's no, there's no rating for haunted houses, is there? 
Uh, yeah, I think the I think the ratings on the outside. <laughs> you, you know, when you walk up and see the signage, I think I think they make it pretty abundantly clear what's waiting for you inside. So I think it's almost common knowledge. But you're right. Is that something that they want to start doing? I do think some of them have age restrictions, though. So not quite a rating, but I think they give you some warnings about what's in store for you. And I think you, you'll see warnings at a lot of these haunted houses telling you, hey, if you're pregnant or if you have a heart condition, you may not want to do this because this could put you in danger. So no ratings, but certainly warnings, which are always a good idea. In addition to the warnings, have you heard or are aware of any haunted houses that require those who go through it to sign off on a waiver of some sort? I have seen that, but most do not. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a haunted house, but, you know, the popular ones have, you know, lines around the block to get in. The ones that I have been involved with and seen have not required waivers, but I'm sure there are those that do it. There's always a question of the enforceability of the waiver, whether you can enforce it anyway. So a waiver only buys you so much protection. I was going to say, it's been a at least a decade or so since I've been to a haunted house. And growing up in a small town, most of the time, it was a local community or civic group that was putting together the haunted house. But I know that the ones that some of the ones that we've been discussing are probably for-profit, elaborate, all new kind of introducing new scare tricks every year to make it even better and bigger than the year before. Yeah, fair. I think if you grew up in a small town, you probably grew up with kind of the uh, the church-sponsored haunted corn maze. And, I, and <laughs> I'm telling you, it's come a long way from there. I mean, there is a whole industry that has sprouted up. There are magazines and newsletters, and there's conferences in Vegas where they show off the newest technology. And it is absolutely a for-profit industry where they're making all their money, you know, one month of the year. It has come a long way from what you're talking about. Are there year-round haunted houses? I don't know. I am not aware of any, but that doesn't mean that some don't exist there. I mean, typically the industry, it's kind of like those pop-up Christmas shops. They make their money for one month a year when the sun is shining, and then they do something else. They get ready for the next year. Must be an interesting trade show. I have never been, but I would imagine it'd be a lot of fun, right? It would be, yeah. it would be pretty interesting. I think that my adrenaline would be pumping the whole time <laughs> from seeing all the new scare tactics. Yeah. So switching gears from haunted houses to our own houses, what are some things that property owners, homeowners, even renters should keep in mind when we have young kids coming to trick or treat on our property or to our front stoop? Yeah, fair. So really, it's just common sense stuff. It's, it's what I said at the beginning. The, the, you know, nothing magical happens on Halloween night and the laws don't change. Other than you're going to have 50 visitors to your door, you know. So, you know, just common sense stuff. The biggest issue that homeowners face is somebody getting hurt somehow on your property. And as a homeowner, you have a duty to people that lawfully come in onto your property to keep your home and property in a safe condition and free of what we call hidden dangers. So if there's something obvious, you probably aren't going to be responsible for that because they should be on the lookout for it. But if there's some kind of strange, latent, hidden defect in your property, if you're the kind of homeowner that likes to dig a pit and put sharpened bamboo stakes in the bottom of it and then cover it with leaves, that's something that you have a condition on your property that's not obvious that's something you either probably want to fix before the trick-or-treaters arrive or warn about or minimize, maybe extra lights, things like that. 
So I'm someone with trick-or-treat season. I have a history of going all out with the yard decor. So I do different colored lights, big spider webs and monster spiders. We even have a fake cemetery in the front and a witch and cauldron. So it's okay that I do all of that as long as it's still a relatively safe path to the front door and back yeah, out. Is yeah, that fair I, to say? I think as long as you're not creating an unreasonable risk of harm to people that visit your house. I say that, and let me tell you, fair, I've read about cases. There was a case on the East Coast where a neighbor sued their other neighbor for the front yard display because I guess they must have been feuding before Halloween, but the one neighbor put up an insane asylum display and had arrows pointing to the other house and was putting up gravestone with the name of their neighbor on it, and, and the and the uh, neighbor filed a lawsuit saying uh, it caused them emotional distress. I don't, I don't know what happened with it, but I guess if you're targeting your neighbor with your lawn display, you might be biting off a fight. Other than that, just keeping your property safe would be the idea. And can you put to rest a dispute, a marital dispute that I have with my husband all the time? He says that for Halloween or garage sales or anything else, we need to hang up a sign that says not responsible for accidents. Does that actually do anything legally? I don't think that does a whole lot. I don't know which side of the argument or you just told me. I'm that. Only like, I, we don't need that. that it doesn't matter. Like, uh, I, you know, <laughs> what does that mean anyway? You're not responsible for accidents, but if you create a condition that is not obvious to the visitor and they get hurt, they're going to hire a good lawyer that says, what is an accident? That's not an accident. That's a dangerous condition you created. You are responsible. You don't get off by just saying, I'm not responsible. This is great. I get to say, I told you so. I was right. Yeah, I, I'm on your side on this one, Sarah. <laughs> Kids all shout trick or treat when they come to the door. Of course, we give them our candy. So there's very seldom any kind of tricks that are ever performed. But are the people who come to your door, do they have any liability for any damage that they might cause while on your property? I have not. I've heard bad jokes, been subjected to some bad jokes, but I don't think that uh, creates any liability. Again, it's just kind of the common sense concept that the laws don't change. So if you come to my front door and you start taking a baseball bat to my pumpkins, that's probably a criminal act, destruction of property for which you're responsible. There could, might even be some civil liability if you start smashing up my car or something. So there's nothing new about the liability imposed on visitors on Halloween night. It's just common sense and the laws that are applicable the entire year. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. Knock, knock. Who's there? Howl. Howl who? Howl you know unless you open the door. I don't mean to rain on the parade of today's interesting and mostly serious discussion of the legal ramifications of Halloween. But let's face it. Halloween is a truly sacred night of bad jokes. I have experienced Halloween in a few places around the country, including mostly St. Louis. While I cannot attest to local traditions in other parts of the state or nation, I have been impressed by one aspect of Halloween here that may in fact be unique. Kids in St. Louis come trick-or-treating armed with really awful jokes. Like this, why do demons and ghouls hang out together? Because demons are a ghoul's best friend. Or this, why didn't the skeleton go to the prom? He had no body to go with. As a consumer of such humor, each year at Halloween I have come to reflect on famous comedians from Missouri 
and specifically St. Louis, Red Fox, Kathleen Madigan, Cedric the Entertainer, Nikki Glaser, just to name a few. Or to go back to our original humorist, Mark Twain, I wonder how many of the current crop of comedians got their start telling bad but clean jokes on Halloween. Most of the kids who bring their humor to bear on this hallowed night are really terrible at telling really terrible jokes. But you've got to start somewhere. And what better place to start than Halloween? You get dressed up as someone else, a lawyer with a briefcase, a walking corpse, an orange-haired, once-and-former president, Cinderella, whatever. In this disguise, you get to practice telling jokes, and to the point, you get booed. Yes, you cannot do stand-up comedy unless you are brave enough to be booed. And boo is the essence of Halloween. It's not personal. The jokes kids tell come from their parents. And if they get good at telling jokes with any kind of luck, they can get better writers than their parents, or perhaps become better writers than those simpletons who write Halloween jokes, or simpletons like me who enjoy them. There is something about Halloween humor that makes the world less scary. For instance, death. Death terrifies us. What better way to meet this fear than head-on by trying to make dead people funny? Like this. Who did the scary ghost invite to his party? Any old friend he could dig up? I could go on, but there are ghosts of podcast producers past who are flying around begging me to stop. I hear them muttering the traditional Scottish prayer from ghoulies and ghosties and long-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night, good Lord deliver us. So this is Mike Wolf signing off with a reminder of something written by Mark Twain, Missouri's greatest humorist, who, by the way, dressed funny and didn't even use his own name for crying out loud. Twain, or Samuel Clemens, or whatever his name was, said this, Humor is mankind's greatest blessing. So I pray that you receive this blessing of humor every day, including Halloween, the night of the dead, sparing you the dread of whatever things go bump in the night, but celebrating the night of the deadpan jokes. Legalese. So it's, it's the general law that applies in most instances. We don't have a whole lot of Halloween-specific laws or local ordinances, do we? That's a really interesting point, Bob. Some towns do. They tend to be municipal laws. You don't see a whole lot of uh, federal or state laws that deal with what you can or cannot do on Halloween night. But uh, some towns do have these strange little laws that they've passed. Um, I mean, I could give you a couple examples. I I happen to know that a few years back, the uh, town council in Hollywood, California, they got tired of cleaning up the silly string And Hollywood has a 24-hour ban on Silly String that kicks in 12 a.m. October 31st and goes through November 1st. There's a little town in Delaware that says if Halloween falls on a Sunday, there's no trick-or-treating, and and you got to do it the following day. There's actually a town in France that banned clowns if you were uh, over 13 years old because they were getting too scary. So uh, uh, there are some specific... Halloween laws, but they tend to be kind of these quirky little municipal laws that don't affect a whole lot of people. Is parental escort required? There may be some municipal laws that actually require a parent to be with children under a certain age. I'm not off the top of my head aware of any. In Missouri, it's not required. It's kind of a 
common sense, good idea, depending on the age of your children, but there's no law requiring a parent to be with their child as they're trick-or-treating. Is there any law that says that I can't trick-or-treat now? So I'm in my 40s, can I still do trick-or-treating or is it supposed to just be an activity for the young? Again, we're back to these weird little municipal laws. No, fair. I, I, you know, here in San Luis, go for it. You should get out there. But, you know, <laughs> get, get that costume on and, and go trick-or-treating. Now, I don't know what kind of a reception you're going to get. You may not, you know, I'm not going to be handing you the full-size candy bar, but uh, um, good luck to you. Now, there are some towns, there's a town in Georgia that passed a law that says that if you are trick-or-treating, you have to be in eighth grade or below. Anyone above eighth grade not permitted to trick-or-treat, which, if you ask me, you know, that's a pretty low bar. I, th I think I had four good years of high school trick-or-treating left in me. That seems kind of a tight restriction. You can trick-or-treat, Farah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, and it, I agree, those high school years, that's when I finally made it to that, the house that gave out the full-size Hershey bars. There's always yeah. one on the street, right? <laughs> Hopefully, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and everyone knows who they are. Actually, on Halloween night at our house, my wife and I go out to see a movie. And so we don't worry too much about trick-or-treaters. But I've been frightened many times driving home after sundown on Halloween night. Some kid is going to jump out in the street and can't see me because of the outfit they're wearing or th something like that. What liability is there for people who are just driving down a street trying to get home and they've got all these other people out there who sometimes are not behaving particularly with the safety in mind. Is there liability involved here with motorists, uh, people who are traveling? What, what's, what's the deal with that? Again, the same liability that attaches to you as a driver the rest of the year. You are required to operate your motor vehicle with the highest degree of care. An argument could be made that if you are in a residential neighborhood and you look out your window to the right and to the left and you see throngs of little kids running around in their costumes, maybe you have a heightened duty at that point to pay extra attention because you know these kids are running around. There is an absolute duty on you as a driver to pay attention and be careful. And maybe that duty is heightened under certain circumstances when you're driving through a neighborhood with a lot of little trick-or-treaters. Is there a responsibility of the adults who are with the kids to make sure that they are corralled properly and not putting themselves in danger? You know, I think that would be a tough defense to sell because Halloween involves, if you've ever been out trick-or-treating with your little kids, it's chaos. I mean, it's, you know, you could be, you know, the best parent in the world and you've only got so much control. Now, I would say if you had a child that's extremely young and or for some reason extremely unaware of their surroundings, maybe it's because of the type of costume they're wearing or maybe it's just because of them, maybe that parent has a duty to make sure that their trick-or-treating experience is safe. But I don't think a motorist that hits a kid trick-or-treating is going to have a whole lot of luck with the defense of uh, his, his parents should have been watching them. Does the state of, I think the state of Missouri has a law that says homes of child molesters have to be marked so that people know not to go there. Is that right? Yeah, there are special rules that apply to people that are on the sex offenders list. If I recall correctly, I think they have to have their porch light off and they impose certain other requirements on them. You know, Missouri does have some other laws related to real estate disclosures, which are pretty interesting. This has come up in my own practice some years ago. 
different states have different requirements when you sell a house as to what you have to disclose to the buyer. And obviously, you need to disclose physical defects with the house. But some states actually require you to disclose whether a violent death has happened in that house. California in particular. I know California, you're required to disclose any death, even a death by natural causes that has happened in the house within three years. I think uh, a couple other states, Alaska and South Dakota, require you only to disclose a violent death or suicide within the last year. So you kind of have these patchwork of state laws of what a seller is required to disclose. Why is that? I think some people buying a home would consider that information that they would want to know. It's kind of a personal question. I mean, is that information that you would want to know as a buyer? And is that information that we want to impose on the seller a duty to disclose? Missouri has a statute right on point. It says that uh, it goes the exact opposite direction. It says that a seller of a home is not required to disclose to the seller what they define as psychological impact to the home. And they define psychological impacts to include violent deaths or suicides, interestingly, as well as whether any of the prior occupants had uh, a disease like HIV or AIDS that is unlikely to be spread to the new occupants, but which may be viewed as a negative by some buyers. That's interesting. Here in Missouri, we're the opposite of, what, yeah. of kind of what the trend is happening in other we states. We have gone, that... you know, yeah, yeah. We have gone the exact opposite way. We've passed a law saying you do not have to disclose these, what they define as psychological impacts. Although, Farah, in Missouri, you'll be happy to hear, you do have to disclose if the house was a meth lab, which I guess is an issue for us here in Missouri. We do require certain things to be disclosed, but just not, uh, not violent deaths in the home, apparently. Not violent. So even if... As a buyer, if I wanted to ask the owner, even though it's not on the disclosure form, they wouldn't have to provide an answer to that. No, that's a very different question. And that's a really interesting question. So the law says you do not have to disclose it on your own as part of the disclosure statement. However, if you as a buyer care about that issue and you ask the seller, hey, are you aware of any murders or, or deaths in the home or any paranormal phenomena? Is the house haunted? Do you know anything about that? And if the seller is getting out of the house because he thinks it's the Amityville Horror House and it's haunted with poltergeists and ghosts and he's getting, he's getting out and he looks you in the eyes and says, oh, no, I've got no idea. I've got nothing. You know, I've got no information about that. Then you're in a totally different situation, a fraud situation. You've asked a very specific question and they have lied to you and made a fraudulent representation, which to you could be material to the purchase. How does that fit in with Halloween, though? Uh, it doesn't, other than it's spooky stuff, kind of the spooky theme. Yeah, it's not uh, anything unique to, the, to October 31st. We were talking earlier about trick-or-treaters. What about Halloween parties? I've thrown some costume parties over the years on Halloween for adult friends. Any special rules or laws there that we need to follow? Or is it similar to what you were saying before, just the same laws, but just a different night of the year? It's kind of the same concept that the the rules don't change, but the atmosphere has changed, hasn't it? Everybody's all excited and they're putting on costumes and and we're going to have fun because it's October 31st. 
You don't get a pass on driving while intoxicated on Halloween night. You don't get a pass on, you know, a noise ordinance violation. All these rules still apply. It's just that it's one of those nights, you know, along with New Year's Eve and maybe a few others where people get excited and like to go out and celebrate. And we see more of these sorts of violations than perhaps we normally would. And I would be remiss if I did not ask about TPing. I know that you said, what is it, LA, they ban the use of silly string for 24 hours. In my small town, TPing was a very popular October 31st Halloween night activity. I am going to plead the fifth as to whether I ever engaged in any of that as a young Missouri. As your attorney, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't admit anything. You know, it's so funny you bring this up because I just had this discussion with a friend of mine. When I was a kid growing up, teeping was a thing. You would see it all. You know, you'd drive down the street and these houses would be teepeed. And, and again, especially like on Halloween, you're absolutely right. Teeping was this big thing. And, and what a nightmare. I mean, that, that would just hang in the trees forever. It would take like three good rainstorms to get it down. You don't see that anymore. And we were talking about how maybe uh, maybe these doorbell cameras, I mean, there seems like there's cameras everywhere, have done away with the uh, teenage ritual of going over and TPing a friend's house. I mean, I, I think it has because you just don't see it anymore, at least not like you used to. My own hypothesis is that the, you know, the abundance of doorbell cameras in the neighborhood is kind of taking all the fun out of TPing because uh, they're going to figure it out. One thing we haven't talked about is what liability the person has who provides the trick or provides the treats. I don't hear very often anymore of people finding razor blades and apples or kids getting X-Lax instead of a Hershey bar or whatever. Does that come up very often anymore? Yeah, Bob. I mean, you're right. I feel like this is something we used to hear about when we were kids. You know, the, uh, the old, you know, kind of, they're almost urban myths, aren't they? The old, uh, razor blade in the apple or, or, you know, the poison candy bar. Uh, It's something I I remember as a kid just being deathly afraid of of that. I mean, I think my parents had worked me up into a frenzy about that. But in terms of liability, I mean, when a child goes to a door on on Halloween, I mean, they're getting prepackaged commercial candy. I mean, they're getting the Snickers. They're reaching their hand into a bucket and taking prepackaged candy. If there's something wrong with that candy, unless the homeowner had reason to know that there was something wrong with the candy, there's no what we call strict liability. You're not automatically liable just because the kid got a piece of candy. Now, where perhaps you can get yourself into trouble is, you know, I remember going to people's houses and there was always one person on the block that had like homemade popcorn balls. I don't know if you remember those or something like that. Now, once you start getting into, you know, handing out homemade baked goods or popcorn balls or whatever, now you you got to start thinking about kids with nut allergies or gluten intolerance. It seems like these allergies are everywhere now. So if you're going to get into making your own treats, I think you just need to kind of be aware of what you're putting in there and letting people know, hey, this could have dairy in it or this could have, you know, nuts in it. I think nuts is what you really would worry about because, uh, that, that's the one that can have a really dangerous allergic reaction. Other than that, with the prepackaged stuff, Bob, I think any risk is really minimal. We were talking about dressing up earlier costumes. I don't know if there's any laws related to this other than maybe 
trying to avoid trademark or copyright laws. But when you dress up in a costume, if you are copying something else, could you maybe get in trouble for copyright violation or or trademark violation? Or are you pretty safe to still mimic your favorite celebrities or superheroes or whatever it may be? Wow, fair. So I, I, you're you're going on a limb here because you're talking about making your own costume. I mean, I mean, do yes. people st- still do that? That's pretty amazing. I, I have a few friends that make some pretty amazing costumes. Well, well that, that, that's pretty cool. So, so here's what I would tell you: if you're buying something in a store or at a costume shop, when you go buy a Spider-Man costume, whoever whoever is marketing and packaging and selling that to you has worked out a deal with Marvel or whoever it is that owns the rights to Spider-Man. If you are making your own costume and you and you want to make a Spider-Man costume and you're not going to pay any royalties to Marvel, I don't think I'm not a trademark lawyer. I'm, I'm going to put that out there, but I, I think you're you're getting into an area where it's not for a commercial purpose. You're not making money off being Spider-Man. So you know, and, th- and then you get into the issue of actual detection and enforcement. You know, I don't think people would be too happy with Marvel if they started suing seventeen-year-olds who were who were making their own costumes. I'm not aware of trademark infringement ever being an issue. And there's also a free pass usually for public figures to put themselves in the public eye and, you know, for um, when you mimic public figures. I think you'd be all right. Now, what is interesting in terms of costumes is there are laws, Farah, um, that say that certain costumes may run afoul of certain ordinances. For example, I know that uh, the state of Alabama has a law that prohibits impersonating a religious representative. You know, dressing up as a rabbi or a priest or a nun on Halloween could technically, you know, run, run afoul of that law. Every state has a law saying you can't impersonate a police officer. If you choose to dress up as a police officer, you know, are you breaking the law? Well, you're not really impersonating. I don't think any reasonable person really thinks that little cute fourth grader in a policeman outfit is out there trying to impersonate a police officer, but they're dressed up as a police officer. So technically, you know, these laws are in the books, but I cannot imagine anyone would consider that a violation of the law. You know, it sounds like there's, there's laws that we have, but there's a lot of things that just are too minor to try to regulate or pass laws or ordinances against. I mean, there's, how do you pass an ordinance or a law about whether a costume obscures the vision of the person wearing it or things like that? There's a lot of things that just, there's no reason to even mess with those on Halloween, is there? You're bringing up a point that's kind of interesting. I, re- I remember, you know, and I do some um, product liability work. In our product liability cases, one of the things we look at, basically three theories of liability. Was it designed properly? Was it manufactured properly or is there some hidden latent defect that they failed to warn about? I remember buying a Batman costume for one of my kids when they were little and looking at the packaging and it said, warning, cape does not enable user to fly and chest plate will not deflect real bullets. So, you know, (laughs) you're you're talking about kind of, there's only so much you know, you can do, the law can do. Some of it, at some point, common sense has got to step in, right? I mean, so, yeah, I I would agree with you, Bob. It's hard to legislate for every possible little contingency. When Halloween's over with, 
or when the kids have outgrown their costumes. Uh, there's secondhand stores that probably might sell a costume or people would donate a costume to somebody else. Any problems that uh, go with the sale of used Halloween costumes? Not that I'm aware of. You know, you would assume that the store would clean that costume, you know, unless that costume somehow presents a danger to the purchaser. I think you're usually pretty safe. I think these people that are in the business of buying used costumes and reselling them, it's, you know, you see it all the time with my, I've got three teenage daughters and uh, they love to go to these vintage clothes stores and buy old jeans and old ratty t-shirts. So uh, I've always assumed they've been washed by the store and certainly when they get home and you wash them. Yeah, I, I don't think there's much liability there. What's old is new again. That's right. <laughs> so maybe TPing will come back in vogue someday. Hopefully not, but you never I know. know. <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah. TPing is out with these with, with these with these ring cameras all over the neighborhood. So to sum things up, for a hauntingly good time on Halloween night, what is your best advice uh, to those listening in? My best advice is use your common sense you know, don't lose your mind because it's Halloween. Just just use your common sense. And the same rules and laws that apply the rest of the year are still there on Halloween night. Just use your common sense and stay safe. Thank you very much. This, is, this has been a fun program for us to do. And uh, we hope everybody has enjoyed it. This is a, a special Halloween production of Is It Legal 2, a production of the Missouri Bar. And Gonzalo Fernandez of the St. Louis law firm Fernandez LLC has been our guest today. And we've had a really good time, Gonzalo. Well, we all know that lawyers are scary. So I, I guess I guess the lawyer is <laughs> a perfect guest on a Halloween podcast. So it was really a lot of fun to talk about some of these quirky laws with you. I enjoyed it. And uh, happy Halloween, everyone. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, is here to share more. For some, this holiday is one that conjures images of sackfuls of candy. For others, it may bring to mind memories of throwing eggs or heaving rolls of toilet paper into trees. But for me, Halloween always means horror movies. For the purpose of our time together today, I'm going to take you far back in cinematic history to when Dr. Frankenstein was engaged in his experiments to reanimate life from dead bodies. However, my focus will not be on the scientist whose desire to play God led him to transcend the boundaries of morality, practicality, and wisdom. Neither will it be on the poor creature that we have branded for almost a century a monster. I want to talk about the town leaders and villagers who go looking for the creature at the end of the film. Certainly, they have every reason to be consumed with fear and outrage. A young girl has been discovered dead by drowning. They form a search party, not quite sure who they're looking for, but certain that someone will be held responsible. Ultimately, they corner the creature in a windmill and set the structure ablaze, bringing about a kind of fiery Bavarian frontier justice. I can remember as a kid watching Frankenstein and thinking that there seemed to be no shortage of monsters in this film. The scientist, who was so focused on creating life that he was blinded to what he was unleashing. The so-called monster, who had no role in his reanimation and very little choice about his fate. I have to say, though, that the third source of monstrosity for me 
was the outraged citizenry blindly striking out for vengeance. Even after the credits rolled and I joined my friends outside in the safe and reassuring sunshine to discuss the inherent awesomeness of scary movies and the cool creepiness of Boris Karloff's makeup, I was left with a lingering feeling of unease. That unease was not that I would be grabbed by a green-skinned, flat-headed creature with bolts in his neck. No, my anxiety was rooted in the fact that the grown-ups in that movie, who are supposed to be the epitome of reason and prudence, were instead monstrous and unthinking in their actions. When my friend subjected me to blistering criticism for feeling sorry for a monster, I dropped my argument that the creature got a raw deal and steered the conversation to other matters. But I never got over the feeling that there was something fundamentally wrong about the way the villagers responded to the situation. Those youthful concerns about fairness have become solidified by a lifetime devoted to the law. In fact, as I consider it today... I see Frankenstein as a cinematic examination of a world unbound by constitutional restraint. More specifically, it is an ode to the necessity of due process of law. Due process stands for the proposition that there is a proper way for people in positions of power to respond to problems. Just because you're in charge does not mean that you get to do whatever you want, wherever you want whenever you want, and however you want. When the villagers faced this horrific situation involving the drowning of a young girl, what was their reaction? It was to focus all their outrage and all their energy on a single suspect, based only upon the allegations of one person, the distraught father. And when they found their suspect, was their response to take him into custody? and then perform a full investigation of the circumstances of the young girl's death? No. Their response was to set fire to the windmill where he sought refuge. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge that his defense would be unlikely to transcend a few well-placed grunts, but there were people who could have offered insights on the details of how this tragic situation came about. Those in charge did not confirm that this creature was responsible for the death of the young girl. They certainly did not consider the circumstances that mitigated the moral culpability of his actions. Decades later, I still say that Dr. Frankenstein bears more responsibility for flinging open this Pandora's box. And at the end of the movie, he found himself sitting safely in the castle, being congratulated on the imminent arrival of his firstborn. Halloween is a day on which, among other things, we contemplate monsters. Some of us see the monsters as something distinct, completely separate from ourselves. However, many of us don costumes in which we take on the role of monsters ourselves, at least for one night in October. Frankenstein reminds us that even among those charged with governing society and protecting the safety of the populace, Fear and outrage sometimes produce irrationality and a rush to judgment. As Nietzsche reminds us, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. 
due process of law is designed to prevent this from happening. So, this Halloween, as you put together your kit to ward off monsters with its crosses, silver bullets, sharpened stakes, and cloves of garlic, be sure to include the due process clause of the Constitution. Hopefully, it will protect us against the horrors unleashed by the most well-intentioned and powerful among us. Nothing further. There are some resources you might want to check out to explore legal issues connected with Halloween or just the law in general here in Missouri. They're available at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you understand about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pree. We'll see you on the next edition of Is It Legal Too?